Hello and welcome to National Review's Capital Record. I am, yes, your host, David Bonson, and today I am your guest, David Bonson. It's by design. Uh, keep listening. Uh, I, as much as you, prefer the episodes where I have another guest. I particularly uh, have really loved some of the episodes we have kicked off 2024 with. Um, I can tell you that we just recorded next week's episode, which is going to be with Zeke Fox from Bloomberg, who has written the book Numbers Go Up, which is one of the greatest books, uh, sort of business uh, storytelling, real life about the spectacular implosion in 2022 of the crypto world. And it is a wonderful conversation. It was a lot of fun to record. So uh, there are a lot of fun things happening here at Capital Record. But the reason why I chose this week, I think this is only the third, it may be the fourth time I've done this. Um, and we're into our fourth year of Capital Record where I uh, do not elect to use a guest and instead do the talking myself is because uh, this is the week that my brand new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life, published by Post Hill Press, has uh, hit the streets and it has begun shipping and there um, is a really massive overlap between the message of that book and the entire intent of this podcast that I kind of want to talk about a little bit today. Now, there is a seven-part podcast series that is not going to be perpetual that is not a ongoing, you know, uh, continued thematic podcast like Capital Record is, and like my own Dividend Cafe, which is where I'm doing all of our, our marketing, our daily, excuse me, marketing, our uh, money management uh, commentary, our, our, you know, kind of deep dive into macro uh, investment themes. The Dividend Cafe is probably my longest running podcast. I think it's been going for eight years now. And the Capital Record is really something I hope will go for another eight years and, and is obviously focused more ideologically than current market outlook. But we did a seven-part podcast series called On the Hook that features me with a guest in every episode um, talking about a theology of work. And there is one guest who is more in the arts community, one guest uh, who deals, who is a two-star general who deals with veteran disabled um, men that uh, had served in the military, uh, men and women. Um, so it's a little diversified, but there's also a good group of theologians and pastors and it's one of my, my favorite projects I've ever done. I enjoyed every conversation. And, and so in a sense, I could just say, well, um, I don't need to talk about full-time here on Capital Record because we did the On The Hook podcast series. But, you know, the On The Hook podcast series was sort of a brand new thing we did for the book and didn't have an existing subscriber base where, of course, Capital Record has many thousands of subscribers and, and those who regularly uh, consume this uh, content. And so I want to use this Capital Record episode to drive you to the On The Hook series if you're interested in such things. But I really want to connect the theme of my book to economics. Capital Record is an economics podcast. 
I have never made any secrets about the fact that my entire view of economics, sometimes people say, well, it's not just economics, you go into faith as well. But, you know, I think I've made very clear that my economic philosophy is inextricably wedded to a worldview, and that is a faith-oriented worldview, and that I do not understand economics apart from certain transcendent truths that I believe are necessary in any economic worldview. And some may have a distinctly atomistic view of the human person, and others may have a, a different set of anthropological understandings that drives what they believe about humans. But if economics is the study of human action, which it is, then one's view of the human person is going to impact what we believe about human activity, and, 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 and not just human activity in the abstract, but the aims of human activity, the methods of human activity, and when we get more specific in, in economic analysis, um, how we are to think about the allocation of scarcity. And that is what I believe economics to be, and therefore it is connected to a, a faith worldview uh, for the necessary epistemological reasons. But full-time work in the meaning of life is very much an economics book, even though so much of it gets into the sociology of people working. It, uh, it oftentimes can read almost ecclesiastically. I am not an ordained person. I will never be an ordained person. And yet I do have a sincere love for church and desire to see church do better on this subject. And so there is a lot of the book that is a critique of the way the, the current uh, evangelical church in particular presents its messaging about work. But what I um, want to say on this podcast is that for those who have sort of uh, been animated by this notion of economics being a study of human action around the allocation of scarce resources and are drawn to the belief that the juxtaposition of economics and morality is itself the need of the day, that there are certain economic principles and understandings um, that require us uh, to have first principles before we can really uh, go further in those understandings, then you should know that I have uh, oftentimes made the case that work is the verb of economics. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's American Habits. Org. The bulk of my critique of Keynesian economics has never been and never will be its inaffordability. The idea that um, a fiscal 
and countercyclical government intervention to stimulate aggregate demand in, per, in points of economic malaise or distress or dormancy um, uh, to provoke animal spirits that my critique has never been because it, it, it costs too much money. Now, I do believe it costs too much money, and, and I do believe that it misunderstands fundamentally where wealth comes from and how wealth is created. And I think there's a lot of errors in a lot of the current, what passes for economic uh, understanding today. But before I, I think any of us delve into what we want to be a cogent critique of Keynesianism, I think we have to start with the very fundamental tenet of Keynesianism, which is that mankind was made to consume. And that our ability to promote and provoke consumption is the be-all and end-all of economics. And this stands in contrast to the great classical school of economics, and I would add it's a sister, um, or, uh, that it's, it's subsequent um, child, if you will, uh, Austrian economics, that uh, puts a uh, much greater focus on production. And I think that this is not merely an economic argument in the sense of trying to understand how we build wealth. It is an economic argument. There is no doubt in my mind that one will have a very, very hard time consuming if things have not been produced. And one will have a very, very hard time consuming if one does not have the means, the means that come from producing, to consume. And that we put uh, the cart before the horse in a dangerous way when we fail to understand that production precedes consumption. But before we make that logical argument in the field of economics, we start with a theological argument that work, uh, that productive activity is what man was made for. And that mankind's ability to enjoy cereal is uh, the easy part that mankind's uh, intent in God's creation, his, his telos is productive activity. That being made as an image bearer of God was not captured in uh, God as a consumer, but rather God as a producer. And that therefore we were made to work. So there's an economic worldview that underpins my theology of work and now what full-time my new book is attempting to do is extract uh, a, an application to some of these things in an environment right now where the uh, American work ethic, shall we say, is under assault. The, the romantic notion of someone who works uh, abundantly hard, makes sacrifices, has an entrepreneurial spirit, takes risks, and finds a great deal of satisfaction in their work, that that concept is, is becoming increasingly antiquated and that we are at risk in America of adopting uh, the European mentality, which even Europe hasn't fully adopted. They've just teased and they've gone further down um, around the bases with this notion of a higher view of societal leisure and a lower view of societal output. And I think it's societal suicide is what I think. 
And before the society commits suicide, a whole lot of individuals commit suicide along the way. We're dealing with that now. Uh, deaths of despair, uh, people living lives of despair, lives of isolation, purposelessness, loneliness. And then we get all the diagnoses. And that's really why I had to write this book because the diagnoses are not just merely wrong. They're the opposite of right. They are not just the absence of right. They're the opposite. They dare to diagnose too much work as the problem, as opposed to the solution to the problem. And, and I believe that right now we are dealing uh, particularly with men. Um, there is a whole lot, I have to say, about losing the expertise and experience of 65-year-old men and women from the workforce. There's a whole lot, I have to say, about 17-year-olds not working hourly wage jobs uh, for their summer spending money as they used to. Um, I think younger and older demographics, there's a profound message in this book, including whole chapters written about my critique of the concept of retirement as a 30-year vacation. But the kind of concentration of angst and of loneliness and of isolation and despair and these things that we talk about, ground zero of the op opioid crisis and, and whatnot, is largely dealing with prime working age folks, very often men, um, and this comes at a time in which we have a significant amount that are removed from the workforce, but have removed from the workforce voluntarily. And that upside down number where we used to have a high amount of people wanted jobs, but a low amount of jobs available. And now we have a high amount of jobs available and a low amount of people who want jobs. The difference between uh, a shortage of workers versus a shortage of work opportunity. Um, you know, there is a cyclical nature to the economy where, where jobs and wages can ebb and flow uh, with per certain components of the business cycle. I have yet to figure out how that can ever be fully and perfectly rectified. I do, I do know the things that can most optimize work and wage opportunity. They, here's the secret, they come from uh, a free enterprise system. However, and, and from removal of government interventions, but even apart from that, uh, I, I don't know that it is a free enterprise problem when you have a cultural crisis of, of people who do not have a high regard for work. And so that's really what the book is intending to go into, and it's pleading with many who have gotten very comfortable with the language of speaking negatively about work, of, of referring to it as drudgery, uh, as viewing it as something you do so you won't have to do it anymore. And what I want to do is uh, decimate that view and encourage uh, people, invite people into a mentality of seeing their work as a place in which their passions and skills can be aligned, where they will sometimes work with people they love working with and other times will work with people they hate working with. Uh, it, in a lot of ways, it's a microcosm of the human living experience. And in a very real way, it's also a microcosm of God's redemptive process, just as he is redeeming since the fall um, the, his creation back to himself into a new heavens and new earth. Our work and our kingdom endeavors fit in that process of redemption, and therefore we contribute. 
in this co-creation or sub-creation uh, through our own endeavors. And some things are very romantic and, 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 and dramatic, like inventing the iPhone or, or um, certain works of, of artistic magnificence that move the needle in matters of beauty. Uh, I, I believe that those are wonderful stories, and I also believe various entrepreneurial rags-to-riches stories are tear-jerkers. I am a sucker for pretty much every one of them. You just tell me about your 14-year-old who literally, you know, staples a few sheets together and comes up with a thing at the school science fair and sells something for 50 bucks to his friends on the playground, and I'm probably going to start crying because I freaking love that stuff. I do. But this is just what I think God made us for, is that problem-solving and that entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, and, and that's really what I mean by work. And, and I'm well aware that some people have jobs they hate. And I'm well aware that some people have jobs that do not animate them, stimulate them, excite them. I don't believe the solution to that is removal from the workforce. I also don't believe the, the solution to that is a pastor piling on each Sunday by talking about how menial and, and trivial our work is. Uh, in some cases, it's a matter of finding a new job. In some cases, it's a matter of getting a new perspective on our job. In some cases, it's a matter of taking a bigger look back and seeing how a job is merely a stepping stone to something bigger you want to do later, and so you're going to pour yourself into it now, recognizing that it's part of the grind, part of the journey. Um, there's so many different cases that you can't address all of them at once. What you can address is the basic principles with which we choose to view our work, which is largely a secret sauce in the American experiment that we viewed our work. There was a sort of Puritan work ethic. I think Max Weber's book on the, the Protestant spirit here is uniquely um, powerful. Uh, but I also really believe that Pope John Paul II, um, his just magnificent encyclical, reminding us that work is about the worker. That if you believe, as I do, that God cares about each worker, not merely the corner office finance guy like me, and not merely the famous uh, art, uh, celebrity, uh, uh, but that he does indeed care about the busboy and a blue-collar worker and a startup business where a couple of people are sleeping on each other's couch and trying ordering three-day-old, you know, eating three-day-old pizza, trying to build out a new thing, and cares about those that will fail, that some of those businesses will fail before the next endeavor or the one after that succeeds. See, the story of human enterprise is highly dynamic. And to the extent that all we're trying to do is find a category, a compartment that we can say, yeah, you got to admit, at least that one's meaningless. I'm sorry in advance. You will not get me to say it. You will not get me to find a compartment by which someone says it's meaningless. Now, some, it may be um, a stepping stone. It may be transitional. And it, and it may certainly not carry a lot of social gravitas. Uh, I get that. But no, um, I have to say that there is meaning in all of work because there is meaning in all workers. And when you understand the worker as the subject of work, as uh, Pope John Paul wrote about, it dramatically enhances your understanding of the subject. And when you understand the object of the work being the production of goods and services that are serving and meeting needs and wants of others, 
then you now have a better understanding of the hats one is wearing. And that an objective or meaning um, the way in which we evaluate work based on, you know, oh, the certain result. Like we like one who paints the Mona Lisa better than we like one who cleans the toilet. Uh, that has a very objective reality to it. But that fact that God views the subject of the person painting the Mona Lisa and the person cleaning the toilets as equally uh, made in his image, uh, totally desnobifies our understanding of work. That is a word I just made up right now, and now I'm livid with myself for not including it in my book. So if you ever see a second edition of full-time meaning work in the meaning of life, and it has desnobifies in it, you'll know where I got it from. But this is uh, a very important concept, and it's something I'll be speaking about a lot as I'm out and about speaking uh, and supporting the book in the months ahead. Um, if there is any view that goes beyond the class warfare and the social strata of the way we view the workforce, it is the view, the Kuyperian, Calvinist, American, and ultimately, of course, biblical view of work that I'm promoting in this book. That is, uh, recognizing a human being is made to produce, recognizing uh, the, sub the, the subject of work as the uh, reason that we put so much significance in the work, and recognizing the inerrant goodness of these achievements of productivity, of creativity, and of innovation, three of my favorite nouns in the world that do indeed reflect the very character of God who worked for six days and rested for one and then asked us to do the same. So I believe if you are a student of economics, you will enjoy this book. If you're a student of culture, sociology, you'll enjoy this book. Uh, if you're a theology nerd, like I used to be, believe it or not, I actually am not anymore. Um, but I was an uh, incorrigible theology nerd in high school. Um, there's, there's something in this book for, for you. And, and you know, in all fairness, that's all by design that it kind of goes across these different categories because in a way that's sort of all the subjects that mean the most to me. Um, I, I, uh, I do economics for a living and this book is attempting to provide an economic rationale for the primacy of work. Uh, but I am deeply interested in matters of ontology, of, of the very being of the human person and that's really what I think the driving force behind this book is, as well as those theological or exegetical understandings and where that fits into the cultural and sociological uh, realities of the day. So we, we, it, it gets into all those categories. So yes, um, you get an abridged capital record today, but it's largely because I would love to encourage you to check out our On the Hook podcast where we do a deeper dive. And even if you don't want to take in a mini-series right now, you can save it for later, download, hold on to it. We're not going to get rid of it anytime soon. But I also would point out that the book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever good books are sold. And I would love your uh, feedback. So please check out Full Time, Work in the Meaning of Life. I appreciate your support, appreciate your interest in the topic, and welcome any questions you have anytime. I don't make that offer enough on this podcast, but whether it's something that a guest said, something I said, something you love to dig into deeper, uh, you're always welcome to email info at bonson.com, info at bonson.com, and I will get the question, I will interact with you. So uh, I work full time, so I'm able to correspond uh, 
at, at will. Okay, my friends, thanks so much for listening to National Review's Capital Record. Thanks for your interest in the message of full time. And thank you for your commitment to the understanding that work is the verb of economics. Thank you.